Warning. The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. Indeed. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 15 of the Hansel and Gretel Code. In our last episode, we found out that the famine facing our woodcutter family was an act uh, or gift of God meant to bring about transformation. Oftentimes it takes tragedy to bring out the best in people. Unfortunately, getting our woodcutter terrified eh, was necessary. And not only for the sake of the story. See, this was a cheeky way for the author to indicate the actual presence of the deity via the literary concept known as the sublime. The sublime was a favorite artistic flourish of Sturm und Drang Romanticism. And what it amounts to is the shocking and very entertaining combination of holiness and horror. Life! Life, do you hear me? Give my creation life! We also learned that such divine, uh, or gifts, they put an abrupt end to the status quo. Uh-oh. And they do that by forcing us to accompany the deity to his or her favorite hangout. You know the one. It's that crappy joint with only two items on the menu, a rock, and a hard place. In other words, we get stuck having to choose between those two famous hardball options. Option A, Surrender to the new status quo on its nasty and punishing terms. Do not try to run. Do not try to escape. Or option B. Ah! Take the road less traveled. A terrifying, even dangerous path towards personal transformation and a growth in consciousness. My name Okay, before we go any further down this road, let's just listen to the story so far. Es war einmal ein armer Holzhacker, der wohnte vor einem großen Wald. Es ging ihm gar jämmerlich, dass er kaum seine Frau und seine zwei Kinder ernähren konnte. Einstmals hatte er auch kein Brot mehr und war in großer Angst. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough he could barely feed his wife and two children. Once, there wasn't even any more bread. And he was terrified. Aww. Part 1 Teil 1 In which we learned the original recipe for baking gingerbread cookies. Okay, ready to dig into the next line of the fairy tale? No. Oh, all right, well, here goes. Da sprach seine Frau abends im Bett zu ihm. Nimm die beiden Kinder morgen früh und führ sie in den großen Wald. Gib ihnen das noch übrige Brot und mach ihnen ein Großfeuer an. Und danach geh weg und lass sie allein. So at night in bed, his wife said to him, Early tomorrow, take both children into the woods. Give them what's left of the bread. Make them a big fire. And then go off and leave them alone. 
that not good? True, Dad. Still, you gotta admit, the wife's suggestion is actually a practical, albeit pathological, step-by-step plan for dealing with the new status quo. One that's characterized by famine, with its naturally horrific consequence of death by starvation. I want my pizza right now. I am very hungry. And make no mistake, she's talking option A here. Which means accepting death by starvation. Except, uh, just like a politician working one of those smoke-filled back rooms, she'll accept starvation, all right. Just so long as it means she doesn't have to be the one doing any of the starving. And what's most striking, of course, is that her suggestion is anything but motherly. And yet, uh, looked at with the eyes of a mafioso, or a politician, it's not only practical, there's a certain logic to it. Killing to me, it's like taking out the garbage. I don't like doing it, but it's gotta be done. It's been said that women are much more practical about life, and they see things much more plainly than men. You require us to give you purpose. Us guys, we very often miss the obvious. Because uh, psychologically, we tend to have a preference for the filibuster. We're masters of procrastination. And we use all sorts of prolonged and convoluted abstractions, pretending to ourselves and everyone else that we're actually doing something important and useful. Hello, when push comes to shove, We often put on our stupid hats and jump right in with some reckless, impulsive action. Roger, Dad. Our first thought, if you can call it thinking, is to try and outmuscle the problem. You know, we run out to the big box store to get a bigger hammer, a bigger boat, or just a bigger bottle of booze. For sure. Getting back to this woman, though, while she may fit the stereotype of female practicality, She's nowhere near the stereotype of motherhood. What is wrong with this picture? What Jung would call the mother archetype. Hmm, what is that? A woman who would sacrifice anything and everything, including her own life, for the sake of her children. I know, I know, I know. And that's why I think we can all agree. Listening in on the solution she's proposing... It's a pretty jarring experience. Oh, forget about it! Sure as hell, she's not meeting any of our normal expectations of mothers and motherhood. And by all accounts, that immediately makes her the villain of the story. (laughs) Although, before we start casting stones and castigating her as the monster of this four-square family... Let's examine her suggestion without bringing any sort of emotional judgment into the mix. Why? Well, if we just dismiss it out of hand as selfish and cruel, we're going to miss a surprisingly fruitful opportunity to unpack and analyze her plan as metaphor. Oh, is it metaphor? Oh, I thought it was meant (laughs) three. So that means it's even more expensive. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And remember from episode 10. No. Well, the basic metaphor we're using for the family is that it represents a single whole consciousness, with each family member representing one of the four so-called functions of consciousness. Thinking, feeling, intuition, and sensation. In other words, this family is a metaphoric mirror of our own personal consciousness. And she, the mother, will eventually have to be identified as one of those four functions. Or maybe one of the four temperaments, just as we discussed in that same episode. Whatever. One thing we can know, almost for certain, it's that her cold-blooded suggestion to get rid of the kids, well, that means that out of those four functions, 
there's one that she sure as hell isn't. Hmm, what's that? Well, that's the feeling function. Hmm. As far as which of the other three she might be, yeah, there's no way to tell right now. Why the fuck not? Well, this is the first time we learn anything at all about her character and personality. And while this plan of hers gives us our first little bit of valuable information in that direction, we're going to need way more information in the form of her behavior and all the things she says in order to make a definitive ID. How long is this going to take? This is only episode 15, and there are probably more than a hundred to go. You're kidding, right? Hey, I've already told you. This fairy tale... It's so densely packed with metaphoric meaning and intent, it's going to take us over a hundred episodes to unpack it all. All right already, get on with it! So what she's doing right now is giving us deeper insight into her personality. She's uh, reciting a list of logical, practical steps for cooking up a solution to the problem of famine. It's almost as if she were reciting a recipe for baking, like, say, uh... Gingerbread cookies. Uh, 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 <laughs> factory baked goodness in every little bite. Part 2. Teil 2. In which we cook up some ayahuasca, hallucinate a scene from The Godfather, and find a month old box of Chinese takeout. Ugh. Fermenting in the back of the fridge. This doesn't smell quite the way I expected. Okay, so let's break down her option A recipe. Step one. Take both children into the woods. Well, since we're pretty clear on the fact that the woods are a good symbol for the unconscious, this step means deliberately entering the unconscious with all four aspects or functions of consciousness intact. And that makes it a very clear and conscious decision, as opposed to just carelessly and indulgently slipping into unconsciousness on uh, recreational drugs or booze. I like that! Also makes it kind of shamanic, like an ayahuasca ceremony. Although, given the cultural milieu we're talking about, you'd have to say this makes it sound uh, an awful lot more like straight-up witchcraft. (laughs) All right, well, let's not go there. Not right now. Let's just understand that entering the unconscious also means entering the new status quo, which always implies a future that's uh, largely unknown if not completely unknowable. All we can ever know about a new status quo, it's always just a guess. And in the case of real catastrophe, or just plain old bad news, any predictions we make, they're pure speculation, based on whatever past experience of suffering we've had, and whatever expectations our imagination dreams up. Oh my God, look, it's coming back. Well, since this new status quo involves famine and the prospect of death by starvation, it's understandable that the default option would be to rush out and buy up all the toilet paper in sight. What? Or, I mean, panic, and then desperately flail about for self-preservation. All of which means going with option A. at her. She's not panicking. She sees the writing on the wall. And she understands that a surrender to the new status quo on its terms, it involves shrinking her family. And therefore, shrinking consciousness. Not growing it. Not good. Okay, next, there's step two. Give the children what's left of the bread. Hmm. Well, this is more than slightly curious, since it amounts to a real sacrifice. I mean, what's she doing? Giving away all the rest of the bread? So how should I know? Who even cares? 
doesn't exactly fit with her role as villain, does it? Well, I... I don't know. Well, I suppose we could think of it as a kind of subterfuge. Something to trick the children into believing in the continuity of parental care. Naturally. I mean, you gotta do something to prevent their active resistance. Of course. You don't want them to know what's coming. Unquestionably. Otherwise, you'd have to drag them into the woods, kicking and screaming. Indubitably. And then you'd have to make sure they got lost. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you'd probably even have to tie them down. By all means. Doesn't seem to fit the metaphor. Yep. Which, I'd have to admit, must be my fault. Amen. But uh, that happens sometimes. As much as I'd like, I just can't explain everything. Uh, excuse you. Except to say that, well, maybe subterfuge is just logical. You know, the smart move. Like Tessio turning traitor and trying to lure Michael to a friendly meeting with Don Barzini. Uh-oh. I always thought it would have been Clemenza, not Tessio. It's the smart move. Tessio was always smarter. Now, the only other thing I can come up with, besides the idea of subterfuge, is that giving the last of the bread to the kids, could it mean a twinge of conscience? I can't help remembering a fairly common ritual in our house whenever we had to throw out food. You know, leftovers that had gotten lost in the back of the fridge for a couple of weeks. And certainly vegetables that had gone bad. Nobody move, nobody gets hurt, see? Uh, not that kind of bad. You know, just the bad. Activating deodorizer. My mother would say a little prayer of apology and even give them an air kiss before throwing them in the kitchen garbage bag. It's a memory that sticks with me. Although, I gotta say, I don't do that with food. I just toss it. I do it with insects, though. I just can't help saying sorry when I kill a spider. Flies and mosquitoes, though? No way. I hate those stupid things. Much better. Part 3 Teil 3 In which we reboot our computers Uh, I mean, home fires Rent angels with dirty faces And then go kick some tires on a used car lot I don't lie Take a fucking car like this A 1966 Ford, a Country Squire 9-pack station wagon Don't worry about the equipment Imagine all the fun you can have in the back And while you're doing it, imagine oh, Alrighty then Moving right along, let's continue our examination of the mother's option A recipe for surviving a famine. All right, if you insist. Step three is build them a big fire. Now, this sounds like a pretty logical, nondescript detail. Just like step two, it must be more logical subterfuge to fool the kids and another small sacrifice. Oh, absolutely. Turns out, though, this detail is historically and culturally interesting. And anything but nondescript. Oh, are they doing that on purpose? Oh, yeah. And that's because in German cultural tradition, there's a well-known ritual called the Notfeuer. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. So this tradition of the need or emergency fire, it might hold some real significance here. No. Not so sure. Now, fact is, there are extensive descriptions of the Notfeuer in both Fraser's Golden Bough and Jakob Grimm's Teutonic Mythology. Let's read. Uh, let's not. The basic concept is this. Everyone extinguishes all the fires in every single household of a village or town in its outskirts. And then they all gather as a group to kindle one new fire. Everyone would then use that community fire to reignite their own hearth. In other words, they would all reboot the home fires in their community from that one new fire. Now, this was a pretty serious ritual, carried out at certain set times of the year, 
including the solstices and Easter, as well as the first Sunday of Lent. But as the name suggests, it was also considered a remedy to be used in case of emergency. Emergencies meaning natural disasters, such as epidemics, especially those involving livestock, but also, you guessed it, in the case of famine. In the Middle Ages, this Notfeuer business was a classic application of pagan ritual, in a time of grave need, when no other logical or more modern and orthodox technology seemed obviously helpful or likely to remedy the situation. Interesting. And that's part of a theme running throughout the entire tapestry of our fairy tale. A theme that plays on the contrast between the more intuitive pagan ways of the early Germans and the more logical mindset of Germans and Germany after Christianization. The fact that these fires were also lit in accordance with the Christian calendar once speaks to a very specific aspect of the same theme. Something known in academic and theologic circles as syncretism. What the fuck does that mean? Well, that's the appropriation and renaming of native, primal, pagan ritual by Vatican missionaries in order to ease the process of Christian conversion as it gradually made its way further and further north of the Alps. In other words, syncretism, it's a fancy word for the kind of subterfuge employed by the missionaries to get the locals to go along with the program and keep them there. You know, instead of having to drag them kicking and screaming into Christianity and then tying them down to keep them from wandering back home to their gods and goddesses. Amen. Hmm. Is it uh, just me? Or does that uh, sound familiar somehow? No. Well, this business of syncretism, it was specifically advocated by Pope Gregory I in a letter he wrote to a certain French bishop or abbot known as Honey, or Sweetie, or Melitus. Oh, brother. I think it's worth our while to hop on the time machine for a brief trip back to June 17th, 601 so we can read a snippet of that flowery little missive. Okay, here we go. Keep all limbs and extremities within the confines of the vehicle. Enjoy your journey. This is gonna suck. Quid diumecum de causa anglorum cogitans tractavi. Forget it. Even the English translations of Gregory's Latin? Yeah, they're practically unreadable. Roger that. In essence, he had decided that instead of destroying the temples and sacred groves of the British heathens and putting an end to their rituals, it was way sneakier and, or I mean, smarter and more logical to leave it all be and just uh, rename everything. And that's the kind of subterfuge Italians would call spaghetti. Uh, no. The word is furbo. Ooh, well, isn't it just Mr. Fancy Words? Melodus, well, he was on his way to England to help in the conversion of all those dumbass Brits. Unbelievable. The uh, sorry. See, Gregory really did fancy the Brits, even though he called them hard-headed in his letter. He called them people of Doris Mentibus. Unbelievable. In fact, this mission to convert the Brits, it had come about because years before, Gregory was smitten with the idea of having all those lovely Brits in the Vatican family. Why, thank you. And we know this because of something that was written about Gregory a century or so later. 
So let's uh, hop back on the time machine and head off to the year 731, when the Venerable Bede had just finished his lengthy but popular Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum. The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. You ready? Here we go. Doors closing. Standing passengers, please do not lean against the doors. Ouch. Now in Book 2, Chapter 1 of that medieval bestseller, Bede wrote an entertaining little anecdote about Gregory from a time before he became Pope. Bede tells us that back in the year 573, Gregory was visiting a typical uh, farmer's market in Rome. Now, maybe he was there to pick up some cheese and apples, or even to find a new hat, or maybe just do some window shopping. Bede doesn't specify. He just says that there were all sorts of lovely items for sale. Among them, some boys, their bodies white, their hair beautiful. Well, having seen them, Gregory asked, Ma di dove vengono? What the country do they come from? And he was told, From the island of Britain, where everyone looks just like them. Then he asked, Ma uh, sono cristiani? Are they a Christian, or are they still entangled in a pagan errors? Pagans, was the reply. Well, fetching a deep sigh from the very bottom of his kind heart, Gregory said, Ma che pene, er, I mean, uh, che pena. Oh, the pain of it. That such a bright face should still be held by the author of darkness, and that behind us such graceful features are minds that know nothing of God. Then he asked, Ma, uh, come si chiamano? What's the name of these people? Angli, was the answer. To which Gregory said, Ah, che bello. Nice. They have the faces of Angeli, and they deserve to inherit heaven with the Angeli. Now, in plenty of places, this anecdote, it's been shortened. Two, they're not angles, they're angels, if only they were Christian. And Bede, of course, had likely intended this anecdote to make the sainted Gregory sound as wise and witty as he, uh, um, undoubtedly was. Oh, my. And yet, for our purposes, as I said, Bede's work was very popular in the Middle Ages and was well-known and widely read for a good millennium. And so this anecdote was probably as well-known in Europe as uh, George Washington's I cannot tell a lie business. So could it be that our fairy tale author intended for us to find this ancient anecdote in between the lines of the story? No, sir. Well, this admittedly convoluted, uh, but more than faintly intuitive connection between Gregory, syncretism, and our woodcutter's wife, it may not be as far-fetched as it might seem to some folks. In fact, having us see it as slightly off-color, that might even have been the author's intention. Porus says, what a load of bollocks. Hey, just saying. Well, after that seemingly gratuitous trip to read about Gregory's chaste and innocent preference for blondes... Don't, don't say that! Let's get serious. We're still talking about syncretism. This was apparently a very big change from the missionary position, or I mean standard missionary tactics. Uh, 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 See, not unlike the Taliban... Vatican missionaries, they weren't shy about the extensive use of force. 
their approach was to convert the local big shot and then get him to smash, destroy, and forbid anything and everything from the local heathen past. And this also included executions in order to make sure everyone was on the same page. What? Well, if you remember back in episode three, no, we read the fairy tale like story of St. Boniface, the patron saint of and missionary to Germany, and how he became the most famous woodcutter in all of Germany by cutting down the most famous sacred tree in all of Germany, all for the sake of converting those heathen Germans to Christianity. Oh, yeah. Well, at least no young boys were uh, mentioned in the process. <gasps> oh! Although, I don't know how you feel about trees. But just imagine somebody coming along to start chopping down those giant California redwoods or sequoias. Or somebody building a pipeline on sacred land. Or fracking the hell out of the rest of the country. All for the sake of converting us to the worship of their one almighty God. Uh, you know. Ching. Well, given that syncretism means a lot less destruction of property, it's still quite a paradoxical strategy. How? I mean, think about it. It amounts to a bunch of keen, logical minds making shrewd use of the obviously irrational and pre-civilized practices of the local yokels. To those same logical minds, the naive, unscientific nature of the Notfeuer, that must still stand out as ridiculous and superstitious, if not just the slightest bit dangerous. After all, it was still a pagan magical ritual having more in common with witchcraft than Christianity. Although, speaking of magical ritual, it's not terribly far removed from that famous modern ritual of kicking the tires on a prospective purchase at a used car lot. Uh? And as we all know, as stereotypical and useless an act as that is, most guys would still feel compelled to perform that ritual in the heat of dubious battle with a stereotypical used car salesman. Utterly useless. Unscientific. Illogical, right? I don't think you know. And yet it's something that even the most logical and uber-educated person might still do. And that's because both rituals, the Notfeuer and kicking the tires, they're acts of intuition. And that's something we're going to delve deeper into as the story progresses. Must we? Well, not kicking the tires so much as speaking about intuition. Just remember that intuition and logical thinking are two of those four functions of consciousness. So what I'm getting at here is that the woman's proposed recipe for surviving this famine, well, it has its own logic. And while that means she could possibly be identified as the logical thinking function, she's uh, kind of muddying those waters. How? Well, logic implies a direct connection between cause and effect. And the effect she's looking for is to get rid of those two extra mouths to feed. So that must mean she's being very logical. Intuition, however, is all about making connections that might defy logic but that eventually proved to be genuine and correct, as well as mind and eye-opening. Keep your eyes open, boys. Since it's not so far-fetched for us to take the wife's suggestion of building a fire and connecting it to the note fire, could she actually be intuition? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's tough to say because we still don't know enough about her. Well, look, bringing the Notfeuer and Pope Gregory and syncretism into the discussion, well, that means we're the ones making the intuitive connections. So, uh, nice going, you intuitives out there. Yay. 
Okay, so let's move on and keep kicking the tires on this fairy tale. And while you're doing it, imagine all the money that that bald-headed prick is going to be making on the car he's trying to fuck you out of. Yes, the man that'll take every dime out of the San Francisco Bay Area. Part 4. Tile 4. In which we discover that this recipe calls for goat meat, comes right out of a famous celebrity cookbook and involves a Bond girl. Please remember to check all weapons and personal items at the front desk. The final step of the wife's recipe calls for going off and leaving the children in the woods. Jesus Christ. Now, metaphorically, this implies a return to consciousness without two of our four functions. I'm sorry, what? Well, this one is tough to explain for more than a few reasons. You give up now? One reason is that, short of brain surgery or lobotomy, you can't just eliminate one or more functions of the mind when you have no use for them. I'm going to be doing some cerebral implants today. Another reason is that the whole functions of consciousness concept, that may still be too murky for a lot of folks to accept. For good reason. Now, I have to admit, this step makes much more sense if you're up to speed on all of that Myers-Briggs business of personality types. Because, as I said in episode 10, this amounts to an entirely new and innovative way to understand Hensel and Gretel. Bollocks, just bollocks. And if you're not all that familiar with the Myers-Briggs business, have never heard of it, or even if you're among those who think it's utterly bogus, I promise. This fairy tale is going to give you a key insight into Myers-Briggs typology and those four functions of consciousness that you can't possibly get from any books, lectures, or even the sharpest critiques of the subject. Hmm. That said, it's still helpful to know that, according to the theory, we each have all four of those functions, which are, in essence, filters through which we take in reality. How we know what we know. When will I know? And we each tend to predominantly use and rely on just two of those functions, which then tend to define our preferred style of interacting with the world and reality. In other words, our personality. And personality is defined by how we tend to act and how we tend to think, as well as what we tend to consider important. I miss your smell. Now, we can never lose any of the functions we don't like or think we have no use for. Oh, really? They can, however, be repressed or neglected. But they don't exactly atrophy. They just kind of retreat into the background of the personality and of consciousness. In other words, they become unconscious by sinking into it. For example, touchy-feely types who tend to filter reality through the feeling function, well, they may imagine they have no capacity to be cold and calculating. Your misery empowers me. The same is true for uber-logical types. Like Mr. Spock, their reliance on the thinking function makes them so very, very logical. Fascinating. Now, believe it or not, those neglected capacities and the functions that drive them, they're still active in the unconscious. And so they pretty much jump out when we least expect it. Ooh. And because they're lurking in the unconscious, doing God knows what, you and I have no conscious control over them. Naughty, 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 naughty dog. So as I said, even the most logical person among us can't help kicking the tires. In Jungian terms, those functions lurking in the unconscious, well, they constitute what he called a person's shadow. The stuff about yourself that you don't really see or are aware of, but that everybody else notices. Oh my God. Becky, look at her butt. Putting Jung aside for now, though... Good idea! 
Another way to understand this step in the recipe is to see it as a psychological defense mechanism. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. And while there are any number of those described in the literature, the one called dissociation, it seems to fit the current situation. What did you say that was called? Well, dissociation has been described as a temporary, drastic modification of one's personal identity or character in order to avoid emotional distress. Now, in the case of our fairy tale, dissociating from the children is a literal defense against starvation and one hell of a drastic response to the sudden and distressing change in the status quo. Roger that. Now, despite the actual impossibility of eliminating or killing off one or more of the four cognitive functions, as this woman is metaphorically bent on doing, this step implies another form of dissociation that all cultures have turned to in the face of frightening changes in the status quo. Hmm, what is that? Scapegoating. Both the actual and conceptual variety. Please call us at 1-800-GOAT-LOVE. That's 1-800-G-O-A-T-L-U-V. Thank you for your time, and thank you again for speaking with the Goat Lovers Association. <clears throat> In fact, her way of dealing with the new status quo, that's a near-exact replica of the recipe for scapegoating as outlined in Leviticus 16. Now, of course, that Leviticus recipe calls for a literal goat. And Leviticus, well, that ain't just a quick little recipe thrown together by some random short-order cook. Something on the order of cranberry sauce a la barte. No, this is the Old Testament. A celebrity cookbook if there ever was one. And the recipe for scapegoating, which includes... 34 verses of very specific and detailed instructions that come straight from the mouth of the big cheese and chef of chefs, Yahweh, or Big Jaws himself. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. Something tells me that's not funny. Although, I don't know what the hell Jaws was thinking here. Apparently, uh, you couldn't just set the goat free. Sometimes it had to be nudged off a cliff, you know, to keep it from wandering back home, the way Hansel and Gretel managed to do. Huh? Well, that's scapegoating for you. This is disgusting. I love it. Of course, those sins had to be represented symbolically probably with some sort of wreath around the goat's neck. Kind of like the albatross in Rime of the Ancient Mariner. Water. Water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. And transferring those sins to a goat makes scapegoating about as irrational a sort of ritual defense mechanism as ever there was. On every fucking level! Ahem. <clears throat> Instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. Indeed, more modern and popularly accepted methods of scapegoating, profiling, and plain old pinning the blame on some patsy, that amounts to the very same thing. Yeah, so what? Well, the important thing in making an intuitive connection between this step in the recipe and scapegoating well, that's to see how turning to an irrational sort of ritual, that's a typical response of mankind in the face of stress or catastrophe. In other words, we all tend to throw up our hands and reach for some sort of defense mechanism, whichever one seems handiest, all in accordance with option A. Everybody put your hands up in the air. 
That's a direct order. Do it now. Yes, sir. Now, in addition to the more metaphoric theme of scapegoating, there's another, even more logically obvious theme written into the step of this recipe. What? Literal child abandonment. You do what you gotta do, you know? Which is something we'll certainly have more to say about in later episodes. Right here and now, though, our intuition has gotten hold of one of the earliest records of child abandonment ever written. And it comes out of that same cookbook. In other words, it's a famous case of child abandonment as sanctioned by Jaws himself. Good old Yahweh in the Old Testament. What's that you say? Now I'm talking about the story of Sarah and Abraham. And their somewhat disturbing treatment of Abe's first wife, or concubine, Hagar, and their son, Ishmael. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bond girl or bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So, uh, not only does this sound an awful lot like scapegoating, what it really means is that we just discovered something very new in our work of decoding the metaphors of this fairy tale. Really? This fourth step of the wife's recipe, it amounts to a kind of meme or meta-theme involving the Bible. In particular, a near-perfect allusion to specific chapters and verses of the Bible. Oh, and I suppose you think that's funny, huh? Uh, no. I think it's amazing and super important. And it's something we'll have plenty to say about. Uh, just not now. That is so typical. Part 5 Teil 5 in which we meet the inventor of the nuclear-powered toaster oven. Now, I don't think we're getting too far ahead of ourselves here if we see that this woman's proposal is actually a bald-faced suggestion to sacrifice the two children to the witch. Holy shit! (laughs) Right. It's almost as if she knew the witch existed. Aha! And while that may sound like some juicy little conspiracy theory, whether she knew about the witch or not, it isn't quite the point. Now, what I'm getting at here is the psychological fact that this recipe marks the witch as her shadow. The shadow being that complex Jungian trope many people may or may not have any interest in, or have even heard of. And yes, I'm bringing in Jung again. Not again! (laughs) Not because I'm a slave to his theories. 
It's just that his theory regarding shadow, it fits the metaphor of this scenario, almost to a T. See, shadow wasn't something he just pulled out of his rear end. Uh, Shadow was his interpretation of a storyline he'd observed over and over in the dreams of his patients, and in fairy tales, which he considered the dreams of our culture. And if you're totally unfamiliar with the concept, or even find it the slightest bit hinky, this fairy tale is going to make it easy-peasy to understand, as well as more difficult to deny. And that's because the intuitive connection we're seeing between the gingerbread witch and the woman in this fairy tale, it's a terrific example of what Jung meant by shadow. So, as Soupy Sales was wont to say, Now, just what do we mean by that? As Jung observed, the shadow is something forever lurking in our personal unconscious. Look behind you. And it always grows more powerful at the expense of consciousness. Just the way the gingerbread witch expects to thrive at the expense of our four-square woodcutter family. And sacrificing to or feeding the shadow, which happens whenever we repress conscious contents, well, that's how consciousness gets depleted. In other words, we feed shadow whenever we employ some sketchy psychological defense mechanism in order to avoid having to deal with or even think about all sorts of important things. Difficult or complex issues and circumstances that tax our abilities and our imagination. I hate Mondays. Or that just scare the bejesus out of us. The bathroom's in my headquarters. Hasn't been clean in months. Now the thing is, Defense mechanisms are often appropriate, if not vital, especially for children who are forced to deal with varying levels and types of abuse at the hands of adults. That shit is fucked up. For us as adults, though, defense mechanisms are sacrifices to shadow and most often constitute a problematic step backwards for consciousness as we allow ourselves to become a little more deaf, dumb, and blind to responsibilities we'd rather not have. Shut up, mate, you're boring. Now, it's a very dark method for dealing with the adult responsibilities that famine imposes. The various steps of this woman's recipe make the whole thing a form of black magic. A kind of deal with the devil. Nonsense. Not of the Faustian kind, though which actually is for the sake of greater knowledge, experience, and consciousness. But for the sake of convenience, which is one of the chief products of all technology. Oh, good. And certainly black magic, or any form of witchcraft, that counts as a kind of medieval technology for dealing with life's problems and responsibilities. I would like a dozen more chimpanzees to be delivered by tomorrow. This woman's four-step recipe also amounts to a mind-numbing acceptance of option A, which is always an appeasement of shadow. Do not try to run. Do not try to escape. Enter the trains in an orderly manner. Yes, sir. And just like the witch waiting and lurking deep in our woodcutter's forest, shadow acts as an illegitimate rogue authority forever active in our personal unconscious, always hungry, and always ready to gobble up any and all crumbs of consciousness we clumsily let fall or willingly throw away. Yes, yes, this is the most important part. Now this may sound extreme, but whenever we act out of greed, laziness, or fear, whenever we compromise our integrity, we're feeding or sacrificing to shadow. In other words, we're losing or throwing away a certain amount of consciousness. And yet, this happens every day. We're all used to compromising on little things, the dirty dishes of life. Hey, convenience and even procrastination isn't such a terrible thing. 
We're only human, after all. That's right, baby. But when it comes to the big, important moments in our lives, the stuff that really counts, the big responsibilities that end the status quo and stick us right between a rock and a hard place, we're so used to compromising, we're only too ready to go with option A, the default option, and accept the new status quo on its terms. Put your hands on your head and get down on the ground. Yes, sir. Option B. Ah! What's otherwise known as the hero's journey. Well, it's a genuinely risky step up in consciousness and maturity. It normally seems so far out of our league, we automatically presume it's too difficult or too far-fetched to even consider. That's correct. Just know... The choices we make in things big and small, they have profound implications, both for ourselves as individuals and for the culture at large. Because shadow is also lurking in the culture. It's what Jung would call our collective shadow. And that collective shadow, like Earth's gravity, wants a constant force pulling us all in the direction that it dictates. Hold the handrail, stand still, and face the direction of travel. Yes, sir. Now, the fact that there are various cultures across the globe, and even cultures within cultures, it makes no difference. Each culture has its own shadow. And for us as individuals to overcome that force of the collective shadow, it means choosing option B. which we all know takes a hell of a lot of strength, willpower, and, um, mm, intestinal fortitude. Uh, you mean balls? <clears throat> it also takes grace. And when grace is completely run out, as it has for our woodcutter family, it means that grace itself has been sacrificed or lost to the collective shadow, making its power near absolute. And that's when the culture itself becomes problematic. Enter, you pathetic morons. Now this is really interesting, because the fact that culture is a collective phenomenon and consciousness is individual, that means we might as well consider culture to be our collective consciousness. That's something I don't ever recall coming across in my reading of Jung. The idea of culture becoming problematic isn't all that far-fetched. Business people are always bringing up the idea of some corporate culture becoming toxic. Stop grumbling and get it done. So, uh, just what is culture? So how should I know? Who even cares? Well, culture as a collective phenomenon is a status quo with norms and rituals and technologies that serve to identify and define it. Culture is a status quo that changes with the speed of a glacier, but change it does. And just like consciousness, it can move forward or backwards. And while those technologies, in particular, may be currently advancing at an increasingly rapid pace, culture itself, as a kind of collective consciousness, well, that's only advanced or improved by individuals choosing option B. Ah! The hero's journey, and in effect, becoming more conscious themselves. That's it. Now, the big mistake we all make is to imagine that culture is improved by advances in technology. Now, instead, all that's improved and advanced is convenience and efficiency. Awesome! Our postmodern culture champions technology. And it does that by funding education in the STEM subjects and in enterprises that promise ever more bold advances in technology. Yowza! Hey, the money only goes where the culture dictates. And this culture, it dictates profitability above all things. Wicked! Which, after all, is very practical. Yeah, that's right. 
Unfortunately, technology is only improved and advanced by the very practical matter of sacrificing parts of ourselves in order to achieve specialized expertise, to get really, really good at something. For sure. In modern Western culture, we don't aim to become well-rounded. That's too inefficient, impractical, and not particularly profitable. I'm about to bring a financial Boaz into your life. That guy we call Jack of All Trades? You know, his other name is Master of Nothing. Loser, loser, loser. And it's the culture itself that encourages us to aim for the carrot on the stick of those masters of the universe on Wall Street or in Silicon Valley. Glory, glory, amen, and amen. And so why do we comply with that aim? I don't want to tell you. It's so that we can have a say in where the money goes. Cha-ching! Our culture rewards advances in technology. And yet, as I said, advances in technology, well, they are not advances in culture. This is repetitive. They only advance the culture of convenience. And yet certain conveniences such as clean water and adequate nutrition, they're by no means available always and everywhere. Who cares? And that's because technology alone can't remedy the situation. (laughs) Right. All of those advanced technologies and porcelain conveniences, they improve what we call our standard of living. They don't improve our consciousness or take back any of the power invested in the collective shadow. What? Well, we're all guilty of sacrificing the shadow. There are those among us who, just like the witch, they haven't just sold their own souls in order to profit from all of those individual sacrifices, big and small. No. For a tiny piece of that collective action, they've promised to deliver the rest of us up in a pyramid scheme of apocalyptic proportion. It's too late now. We're going to find out that Hansel and Gretel, it isn't just about us as individuals, with our own individual consciousness. Hansel and Gretel is also about our collective consciousness. And in particular, the Western European consciousness and culture that produced this fairy tale. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god! A culture that, except for its technologies, it hasn't changed or advanced all that much over the centuries. Johnny, is this true? And now, our postmodern culture has us all in the hands of modern-day witches who have no interest in gingerbread. No, they... They've got a completely different recipe in mind. Do we have any Cheetos? In fact, some of them already have it. And some of them desperately want it. And, uh, what do you know? It's another recipe dealing with baked goods. You know the one. The recipe for turning every one of us into burnt toast. In our next episode, we're going to find out who really wears the pants in this family. So, here's the next line of the fairy tale. Der Mann wollte lange nicht, aber die Frau ließ ihm keine Ruhe, bis er endlich einwilligte. For a long time, the man refused. But the woman gave him no peace until he finally said, yes. So while this might sound pretty cut and dried, 
It's a meme that's so loaded, it's going to take us more than one episode to unpack. And not just because it's the moment when we come across the first lie in the story. I'm out of here. There are an awful lot of voices clamoring to be heard in the wake of that lie. And not all of them are imaginary. And they're all there to help expand our collective consciousness and bring us closer to those jewels I promised we'd find in this story. Ah, very good. I do hope you're up for listening. Don't think it was very good, really. Remember, you can find full transcripts, links, and credits for all of those delightful and generous peanut gallery voices on my website, betweenthelines.xyz. Between the lines is one word. Now, all I really ask is that if you like the podcast, would you please, please, please share it with a friend or two or five? No. You know, that would put my numbers up to like, what, uh, six or seven of us? Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti. Ciao, ciao.